just thank you that your presence is here. And as we have gathered in your name, we just pray a blessing on each one of us, Lord. Maybe we meet with you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. It was brought to my attention the other day that the act of sitting listening to a sermon is a consumer occupation. Those that write them, if they're anything like me, spend hours in preparation, reading, research, writing, falling in on our knees in desperation, crying out help often. And we talk to a passive listening crowd who consume what's being said, often with our minds, and let's be honest, I'm normally sitting where you are, on many other thoughts. I wonder what is filling your minds tonight. And as a speaker, you just have to hope that something registers, a thought, an insight, and an encouragement. Because if the congregation are anything like me, who has been attending church for years and years, much of what is said tends to be forgotten even before we exit the door, or maybe before, or maybe that's just me. So I thought I'd begin tonight with trying to emphasize the uh, three points. I'll begin by emphasizing three points I want to make. I sound very loud. Am I very loud? I'm okay. The first is the title of my talk tonight, which is Boundaries. And it's really uh, the second part of a talk that I began. I, I started in May, and some of you will have heard that and may remember snippets. And it was about being broken. But for those of you who didn't hear it, well, honestly, it doesn't matter. This talk can stand alone. Two, so that this is less of a consumer experience, I'm going to ask you all in a minute to stand up and read one of the readings I've got. I've got two readings, but to read one of the readings, and it will appear, the Bible passage will appear on the screen. Three, I don't know what you will remember of my talk tonight, what impression it will leave with you, but I'm guessing for some of you it's not going to be comfortable. You may not like it. So please can I say at this juncture that this talk is my testimony. It's a story of my faith journey. So the two Bible passages, I'm going to read the first one, which is from Luke 10, 25 to 29, and then I'm going to ask you to stand to read 1 Corinthians 13. So the first one in Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who 
is my neighbor. So if we could stand for the next one. Thank you. Oops, I've got to find it. So, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a resounding song or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my, my body to the hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you. So, accepting that so much of what is said by preachers is sadly forgotten, if only in my life, it is funny how some fragments just seem to remain in the memory and from time to time replay themselves. I can't remember 90, 99% of the cases what the, actually the main thrust of the sermon was on, but particular stories and funny tales Yes, they do linger. One of these stories was from a large Christian conference that I was once at. I remember it being really hot, and the sides of the marquee were where literally thousands of us were packed in. The sides had been taken away just to accommodate more seats, and they were spilling out on the grassland around and on the path. The speaker... Jay Pathak from America was very funny and very popular. And he came to a point in his talk where he asked us to imagine that he was Jesus standing right at the center of a large crowd. It was not hard to imagine in those circumstances. And then Jay asked us to visualize that the people actually closest to him, those in the front row in the marquee, represented the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, the scribes, 
because that was surely their rightful place, closest to Jesus, representatives of God on earth, the learned and the wise. And then he pointed to those right at the back of the gathering and let them know that they represented those furthest away from God, the underdogs, the outsiders, the drug dealers, the pimps, the thieves. And in the process, he actually identified people. And one poor man was told that he was a scoundrel. He was a filthy tax collector. And to another, you, madam, are a woman of the night. And of course, it was all very funny because at these conferences, the VIPs, the key speakers, they all sit at the front. And they were told, we were told that they were the Pharisees. And thousands of eyes had turned to look at this poor man at the back who was the reviled and hated tax collector. Thank goodness our attitude to tax collectors has changed. And then Jay asks, imagine that scene. Which ones would you say in that crowd are running towards Jesus and his message? And if you had been in that crowd, what would your position be? I became a Christian nearly 40 years ago now, and I can absolutely say I did not run towards Jesus and his message. I really didn't want this story of Christianity to be true. Fine to study this character in religious education, but very, very different to understand that this man was real and he and his father wanted to be in a relationship with me, with all those rules and regulations to follow. As I saw it, it was like handing over control of my life. And at 21, I wanted to be in control of my life. For some, becoming a Christian means they are likely to be killed, to be expelled from their homes, to be rejected from their families, imprisoned, lose their jobs, face abuse. For 21-year-old me, my serious issues were not being able to hang out with the cool guys, having to spend Sunday morning in church reading the Bible, giving up control of my life, And being nice and kind of wet, that's actually how I saw it. But the evidence, this man Jesus, it was so persuasive. If what I read about him was true, how could I say no? And when I said yes, wow, for me such joy, such a sense of falling in love, of delight, of coming home. I may not have placed myself with the outcasts in Jay Pathak's circle, but I was running now and so eager to learn more. Passion and on fire for this newfound faith, I consumed everything I could to help me understand more. Some of the teachings I remember from those early days, my name was written on the palm of his hand. He would never forget me or forsake me. When I died, I would go to heaven. I should never let the sun go down on my wrath. I must forgive as Christ forgave me. The world was created in six days, and on the seventh, God rested. I was to keep Sunday holy. The Bible was written by men, but inspired by God, and it was without error. 
the infallible word and the authority of God. I learnt that the devil was real and prowls around like a roaring lion. I was not to judge others. I was an heir to God's kingdom, accepted in, saved as opposed to not saved and out. Persecution for my faith was to be expected and 10% of my income would be given as a gift to the church. Homosexuality was unacceptable. And to just make sure that if I was ever caught out in a debate, I wrote the key verses in the front of my Bible, ready to hand. I learned to say, no, I was not religious. I was a Christian. I learned, too, that not everyone who claims they are a Christian is in fact a Christian. And to inwardly roll my eyes at the thought of the liberal wing of the church. I have memories of being with my new flatmate, Anna. Anna had been brought up in a church, and she was my go-to for all questions on any occasion. And on one time, I had heard about a particular strand of Christianity, and I was asking if that was us. She laughed at my question and said, No, we're evangelicals. Oh, evangelical Christians. No Google search in those days to see what that would mean. But whatever, evangelical Christianity, that's who I was, and I was one of them. This was my group now. And so I acquired new beliefs, a new understanding of the world, and who I was, and who Jesus was. I came to adopt the boundaries of my newfound faith through what the Bible teaches. Boundaries are good. They supply protection, give understanding of what is acceptable and what is not. A child who grows up without boundaries is at a huge disadvantage, good boundaries, I should say. And here I was with my new family and the Great Commission, encouraging me to go out to others and share this amazing teaching and to invite others in. Evangelistic, enthusiastic, and invitational. Thoughts linger in the mind. J. Pathak's comments, a phrase, a verse, the line of a song plays over and over in our heads and we try to determine what is being said. What does this mean? I ask that we sing Hosanna tonight because there's a line in that that really draws me. I love the way the music cascades and the words Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom cause. Over recent years, it's run through my mind repeatedly. We say words like the Bible reading that we said tonight, or sing the words of a song, and as you're saying them, you're thinking, what am I actually committing to here? So I have thought, what would it look like if God broke my heart for what breaks his? What would this mean? Break my heart for the whole world? How could I exist with that burden placed upon me? I remember walking down the lane where we live, not a big lane, not many houses, but I knew some of the terrible situations that neighbours have lived with and do live with. What would happen if God broke my heart just for the people in that lane? How would I manage all of that pain? 
And then the thought leading on from that. What happened if God broke my heart just for the things in my life that break his heart? The sin living in me. What would that look like? Would I give everything for his kingdom cause? About 12 years ago, Miles and I were invited to a New Year's Day lunch with neighbours in our lane. We would be joined by a group of friends who we did not know. Sitting down with our plates piled high, we were stopped from digging in to give grace, which was given by a single man sitting at the table. And as he prayed, something led me to open my eyes just seconds before the amen. And I witnessed the entire table of people, apart from Miles and I, in the final stages of completing the symbol of the cross across their chest. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness me, we're in a room full of Catholics. Right. And the meal progressed. We were... Um, And the meal progressed. And because my very mindset of sharing the good news on any occasion and the desire to be invitational, I spoke to a young girl next to me and we were about to have uh, a ladies' lunch in this church. And I told her that the person who was going to come and speak was someone who for years had been wheelchair-bound until she was miraculously healed following prayer. Bingo. My mum would love to come to that, said Becky. And Jackie came to the lunch, and it was wonderful to hear Jennifer Reese Larkham give her testimony and witness to the wonderful love of God. Then a few days later, I was walking home, and I was thinking of Jackie and the forthcoming Alpha course. And guess who I should bump into? Jackie. So I plucked up courage, dived in, and invited her. And she was so pleased to come. First Alpha course with just Jackie. Second Alpha course accompanied by her husband and our friends who had invited us for the New Year's Day meal. And then the question from Jackie. Sarah, I love what you do at CCBC. But I am a Catholic. I go to a Catholic church. I would like to see more of what you have where I am. So... Would you consider us running a home group together? And we discussed how that might work. What would we focus on? The things that bind us together, Jesus, and agree not to touch the areas where there would be division. And in my arrogance and conceited and ignorant mind, I thought to myself, this will teach the Catholics a thing or two. And so we began Six Catholics, three Baptists, and an Anglican. I've since wondered where I learnt to discount the Catholics. History, I suppose. The kings and queens of England, religious wars, the confrontation in Northern Ireland, a tick box that I seem to remember filling in where it asked us to affirm if we were Catholic or Protestant. Contraception, Mary, traditions, religion, and judgment. Well, I could say much about our home group, but I really haven't got time at the moment, other than to say this group has proved to be one of the best. A handful of people living, laughing, learning, loving, honest and earnest, 
journeying together, growing in our knowledge and sharing our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends walking with one another, seeking the face of Christ and throughout that through our lives we might reflect him in all that we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. For what has emerged from my graceless attitude is grace, love, and relationship. And I praise God for this group and how they accepted me and have taught me so much. The Quakers have a beautiful saying, an enemy is a friend whose story we have not heard. Have you ever thought it funny how we can be so critical of the Catholic faith and yet almost always whenever we want to highlight an example of an outstanding Christian we name Mother Teresa who was Catholic. Now I listen with new ears aware of the conference speakers put down the criticism and the dismissal when my part of the church knows someone's a Catholic the withering look, the throwaway comment, a line simply dropped in. I used to be a Catholic, but now I am a Christian. And I think that was once me. I might have said that. And this evening I share it with you because this is my testimony and because I want to encourage others who may hold similar views to the ones I once held because so often we make judgment from afar without actually knowing the facts, because without love we can sound like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, because love is not proud, and I was, and because love is the fulfillment of the law. Boundaries can be good if they are good boundaries. Human beings love boundaries. In fact, we're hardwired to maintain them and addicted to our need to make distinctions and judgments. Much of our inner processing involves boundaries. What we consider is right, what we consider is wrong, what is black and what is white, who we are in a situation, the ins and the outs. Where do I stand Think about the caste system in India. Football teams we support. Race, religion, politics, gender. The list goes on and on. Even counties. I don't know if you know this, but apparently Yorkshire is God's own country. Yes, honestly, according to my husband, who incidentally happened to be born there. Galatians 5.14 For the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? The expert in the law asked Jesus. It's five years ago. I'm sitting on a bed. It's late. For some days I've been trying to come to terms with an issue that is way outside my experience. A crisis previously unseen, struggling to understand. I am with one who I dearly love, trying to be a help 
in a circumstance that is completely new to me. We have been chatting for many hours and days, and then the moment comes when the words are spoken and reality is revealed. You could say for me it was a Damascus Road moment. You know that story in the book of Acts where Saul, the perfect law-abiding Pharisee, meets Jesus. And so I'm sitting on the bed, and he tells me, he tells me he's gay. And I think in an instant, amongst all the thoughts whirring around in my head, how much I love him, and how I know that that love is nothing compared to God's love for him. And I know too from that moment, and I don't know how I'm going to square it with the verses so neatly written in the front of my Bible, that a life of aloneness alongside the rejection he is going to receive from so many quarters is no longer an option I can accept. And in that moment, my whole foundation shifts. Of course he is gay. Haven't we always known that? Hasn't it been obvious since he was a very young child? Hadn't I seen it in his face when at 16 the girl standing so close in front of him, looking adoringly into his eyes and grinning up at his face, was just met with an adoring look back? No sexual tension there, just one friend smiling at another. But for me, at that time, it was an absolutely unthinkable thought. I could not entertain it. I have read the teaching, known it for years, never questioned, had spoken often in support of it. I was disinterested, blind to the suffering, so shamefully indifferent. But how could my long-held views, so firmly held, shift so quickly? Well, in my case now, I had skin in the game. Or in the words found in Ezekiel, my heart of stone had become a heart of flesh, and love changes things. This young man was not in a good place. It was so sensitive. And so for three years, Miles and I metaphorically joined him in the closet. Beyond three people, no one else must know. And there in the darkness, dealing with my own confusion and emotions, we tuned into a new world. One of homophobic jokes that previously had sailed over my head. The comments and the digs. Stigma-faced in everyday society. The bullying experienced by the LGBT community and the high levels of suicide. I came to see in myself how, without consciously realizing it, I had actually stopped valuing the opinion of anybody I knew that was part of this community. As if their sexual orientation in my, had closed my mind somehow and negated what these people were saying. And then there were the sermons in church, which once I have, would have sat through unmoved. Now my heart was racing, 
feeling sick, sitting on the edge of my seat. Not literally, of course, because we were in hiding. No, hold the pose, slightly, relaxed face, disinterested. One thing I have learnt, you don't need to preach on these verses to the LGBT community. They already know. Those inside the church and those outside the church are well aware of the church's teaching and views. And for all those throwaway comments so lightly passed in chatting with Christian friends, I kept having to remind myself I would have said that once. These were my views. Two years ago, we began to tell people cautiously, Please let me remind you that this is solely my testimony. I cannot begin to imagine what it must be like to actually come out. Of course, in some parts of the world, to be discovered means likely death or imprisonment, persecution, rejection. I'm writing this script at home and realize that my list of what gay people might face is exactly the same as my list of what people, many people face when they become Christians. But this is my story. And I live in a world where many of my friends belong to the evangelical wing of Christianity. And to tell each one of them sadly feels a little like jumping off a cliff because I can never be confident of their reaction. Yet time and time again, I have been amazed by the openness and understanding shown. And I have also been surprised and taken aback by how, with a high percentage of these people, by the time I reach my second sentence, they're no longer listening to me because they're telling me their story of loved ones, sisters, brothers, sons, daughters, friends, stories kept in the dark, hidden away, known not to be discussed. It's as if a dark box is being opened in the safety of knowing I am one who will understand. My heart aches for those in our congregation who still hide. Do our young people, including those struggling with their issues of sexuality, know that God's love for them is unconditional and so is ours? There are no second-class human beings. All of us are made in the image of God and nothing can separate us from his love. And never mind just inside this church. What about that out there in the world? I stand before you a broken and a changed person. This is my testimony. Deconstructed, death to who I previously was. There have been times over the last few years when I have felt like giving up, letting go of my faith. It has been so painful. But it has been a journey. And by the very nature of this journey of transformation, you have to complete each stage. Quick fixes don't suffice.
And I can tell you that I am now so grateful for that journey. Not for my previous attitudes or the pain as I have wa- that I have watched others go through, but because as the darkness passes, I am in a new place and I have a new understanding of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, a love that surpasses all knowledge. I would not go back to who I was. This is my story. I have found it so cathartic to write my story, to share it with you tonight. And I wondered at this point when I thought, what is your story? We all have different stories. Do you have someone you can share it with? To close, in preparation for this talk, I have thought much about those sitting closest to Jesus in J. Pathak's imaginary crowd, the religious leaders of the day who from birth had been steeped in the ways of their faith, upholders of the law of God in a land ruled by a foreign nation, Their livelihoods, training, position in society and families depended on preserving that institution and waiting, waiting for God to send them the promised saviour. So close to it that when into their midst stepped the personification of love, an illegitimate carpenter's son, known for his praying, preaching and partying, friend of sinners, They couldn't acknowledge him. For three years, Jesus called out to them, Look at me. I am here. And he raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, preached good news to the poor, released prisoners, fed the hungry. But they could not see. Blinkered, they would not allow themselves to be transformed. And as I dwelt on this, This thought dropped into my mind. God never changes. Without limitation or discrimination, his love was as true and solid for those representing his church as it was for the outcasts who ran so readily to receive healing and the promise of life in all its fullness. Love does not exclude It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Thank you.